What's up, Active Lifers? Welcome back to the Active Life Podcast. I'm Dr. Sean Pastuch. I'm your host. Today's guest is Navy SEAL Commander, author of The Attributes, 25 Hidden Drivers of Optimal Performance, Rich Divini. When we get into today's show, the biggest thing that I want you to take from it is lessons that you can learn from Rich about how to earn trust on purpose and why those lessons are so valuable. Rich is a master at helping people, himself first and foremost, and others through his own experiences, understand where they are best suited to be exceptional. And part of understanding where you are best suited to be exceptional comes with self-awareness, and it comes from stepping through fears that you have about uncertainties about your ability to execute a given thing. And on this show, Rich talks about the value of when it's time to fight, the value of when it's time to flight, and the value of when it's time to freeze in between and start to make a decision. By the end of this show, if you haven't gotten something out of it that makes you a better person, a better leader, a better partner, then frankly, you weren't listening. So I'm not going to waste any more of your time. Let's get you right to Rich Divini. Active Lifers. Good news for you today. Bulletproof is back. Due to popular demand, we have brought back our body part specific training programs. The Active Life team of doctors and coaches have developed four programs for you to choose from back, shoulders, legs, and total body. Kiss your aches and pains goodbye and finally feel great again. Check out the link in show notes for all of the details. Rich Devinney, welcome to the Active Live Podcast. A pleasure to have you here. Thank you, Sean. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. I want to get right into it with you. I've, I've listened to some of the stuff that you've done in the past. I've, I've read some of the attributes, the book that you wrote, and we'll get into that mm-hmm. later on. One of the things that I've heard you talk about is the concept of turning fear into courage. And this is anyone who follows combat sports knows that this is what Customato did with Mike Tyson in the locker room at the Olympics and all that kind of stuff. Right. Yeah. yeah. But, um, I would love to hear from you kind of how that's done. And I'll give you, I'll give you a premise to go off of. Okay. I have three daughters aged by the time this comes out, uh, three, four and a half and six. Yeah. And the oldest one, the six year old, um, she will talk often about, I don't want to, say that she has anxiety. It's the wrong way to describe it, but that she's afraid of things. She's, I'm, I'm nervous to do that. So right. one of the things that we've discussed is being brave is not the absence of fear. It's being afraid and doing it anyway. That's right. And so I would love to hear you talk about um, how people can start conceptualizing, turning their own fears into courage that helps them take action that, that will improve their lives. Yeah, what a great start! And I have to compliment you uh, with a with as a father of three daughters of those ages, you look extremely well rested. So congratulations Thank on that. You. Thank you. I have I have I have a wife, I have a phenomenal wife who yeah. fortunately doesn't work. And when the kid comes in the room at two in the morning to have to go to the bathroom, she gets up with them. She takes care of it. Well, that's great. Well, yeah, I know we ours are ours are four, we have two boys, fourteen and sixteen, and they are they are um, you know running their own show now. So, so it's good for, it's good for us. Um, so let's talk about this. I think it's a really good point. And I think it's one of those topics that requires first some, some kind of 
kind of definition of terms here, right? And um, and one of those terms certainly is fear. Uh, one is courage. Um, but before we kind of get into those things, we have to actually ask ourselves what, in fact, causes fear. Um, fear is a response in our system, and it's a it's a uh, it's a it's a key off of our amygdala, which is in our brain, our threat response. Uh, system in our brain, which is our amygdala, which, which basically senses threat and begins to ramp up uh, due to threat. And that's where the fear kind of response comes from. Um, that amygdala gets kicked off when two conditions are present. Okay. Those two conditions are uncertainty and anxiety. Okay. Um, you can have one of those conditions without the other, and you don't necessarily have fear. Okay. Um, you can be anxious but not uncertain okay anxiousness is really just nervousness okay that's all it is there's no fear there that that'd be like you know someone's going to give a presentation to their uh to their colleagues you know tomorrow or next week and and they're not they're a little nervous about it but they're not uncertain about it. they know the colleagues they know the presentation they know that there's nothing uncertain about that environment they're just a little nervous okay so that's anxiousness without uncertainty you can have uncertainty without anxiousness, okay? And that is, well, that's every kid on Christmas Eve, okay? Um, and then add to that a little curiosity and you get excitement, right? So uncertainty plus curiosity equals excitement, okay? Uncertainty plus anxiety <laughs> equals fear, okay? You, you have both of those together and you start to tickle your amygdala. Fear, the fear response starts to, starts to kick in. Um, as that grows, our amygdala response grows, we can, we can, we are at risk of going into what's called amygdala hijack, which is really where our conscious mind frontal lobe kind of comes offline. As the amygdala response kind of builds, our conscious mind, our frontal lobe is kind of coming slowly offline. Our limbic is starting to take over. Amygdala hijack is when that whole system kind of happens and we, we, we act without thinking, right? And that could be either we're, we're running away or we're fainting or whatever it is. We just, whatever, or we're, we're doing whatever. Fortunately, we are in a position nowadays in modern society where that doesn't happen that often, right? Those, those cues are really just amygdala tickles, right? And, and so we're, we're, we're sensing that. Um, once that amygdala response starts to engage, uh, we are provided by our brain with two choices. And we, we, we all know what those choices are. They are fight or flight, okay? Now, there's often been spoken of a third choice called freeze, right? But freeze is, in fact, when it comes to neurologically, um, an oscillation between the two. It's a choice. It's a decision point. You're basically trying to decide the two. That's really what freeze is. Um, but whether you fight or whether you flee, uh, there's a specific circuit in the brain that gets tripped, okay? So if you fight, one a, a circuit gets tripped. If you flee, a different circuit gets tripped, Um should you decide to fight, which literally means step into our fear, okay, the, the, that, the, the circuit that gets flipped is, in fact, the courage circuit. That is what happens, okay? That's, 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 that is where courage begins to, or I should say that's where courage shows up, okay? Once that happens, we actually get rewarded. Our brain gives us a reward with dopamine, and we all know what dopamine is, kind of a reward chemical, one of the most powerful chemicals that we make, a neurotransmitter that tells us, this is good, keep doing it, right? It's also the root of addictive behavior. Addictive behavior, actually, the, the misconception that, that like smoking or drinking or gambling creates dopamine. No, in fact, what it, what it does is it, it just tells our system, this is really good, and our body says, hey, this is good, keep doing it, right? So our body is doing that. So it's not the, it's not the act that's giving us dopamine. It's our brain saying, this is good. Keep doing it. Anyway, 
when we step into our fear, when we decide to act, we actually get a dopamine response. Now, this is actually nature's design. I mean, we're designed as human beings to be exploring, you know, kind of discovery creatures and go out and explore, discover, find food, find shelter. So there are, nature's given us a reward system for stepping outside of our comfort zone. Um, so that's number one thing to think is, is one of the ways we can start thinking about turning fear into courage is understand that when you do so, you give yourself a reward, right? And that's really cool to think about because you can start thinking about practicing courage. You can start thinking about those things that you are uh, a little bit afraid to do and start doing them, you know, and you'll get, you'll, you'll start feeling this reward system. Now, in the more extreme cases, um, when you are starting to get overwhelmed with uncertainty and anxiety and fear is starting to ramp up, the ways we can start to combat that um, are to buy down both of those elements, okay? So buying down uncertainty, buying down anxiety, okay? The first thing we have to focus on buying down is anxiety, right? Because what we have to understand is anxiety is all internal. It's, a, it's an internal physiological response. When, we, when, that's, when that begins to happen, you know, our breathing gets short and rapid, our pupils begin to dilate, we begin to focus in on the threat, right? And, um, and those, are the, those are the physiological responses of kind of that fear response. Well, we can, we can, we can actually take control of those physiolo- physiological responses and actually t- and have the reverse action. So in other words, if we defocus our vision, for example, it begins to back us off that sympathetic fear response, okay? So one of the ways that we do this, or one of the ways this can be done, and this is proven scientifically, is go into what we call open gaze, okay? Again, when, we, when we're in a fear response, our pupils dilate, we focus in on the threat, okay? That's what happens. So if we deliberately put our gaze into open gaze, so what this means is I, I, I might be staring straight ahead, and I'm not really staring at something. I'm just, my, my eyes are, my, my, my vision is soft, and I'm noticing all my peripheries. That open gaze has proven to start bringing someone into a, shifting us into a parasympathetic response, bringing down our fear response. Same thing with um, what's called EMDR. EMDR is the is a technique where if you keep your head kind of straight and just move your eyes laterally from left to right, okay, that lateral movement has been proven to start to de-stress, you know, to de- you know, bring down anxiety, to start to shift us to sympathetic to parasympathetic uh, states, okay. Um, same thing with breathing. There are breathing techniques that actually can, we can, uh, HRV breathing, um, CO2 blowout breathing, some breathing techniques that actually de-stress us, bring us off of uh, that fear response. Once that, once we begin to do that, we begin to bring down that anxiety, our frontal lobe begins to come more online. And then we can use our conscious mind to then start dealing with the uncertainty. Okay, uncertainty is all external. <laughs> okay, there's there's not much we can do about it other than to ask ourselves questions about it, all right? And the very first question you can ask yourself is, what about this environment do I understand? Or what about this environment is certain, okay? Now, that list might be pretty small, but you've just made a list, okay? So even if it's one or two things, now you have one or two things that you can latch onto as certain in the moment. And then you can say, okay, what what can I control in this moment? Um, And you pick something and you move towards it, all right? That act is going to A allow you to move into your fear and B, give you a dopamine, uh, a dopamine reward. And once you get that dopamine reward, you can actually use that to do that act all over again. So now, okay, now what do I understand and what can I control? And you move to that. And then now what can I, and that, this is exactly how we can effectively move through stress, challenge, and uncertainty. And this is what Navy SEALs actually do. We just do it without thinking about it. We're just, we're, we're kind of masters of this whole thing. We, we could be dropped into an environment. We immediately calm ourselves 
we immediately start thinking about things and we say, okay, what can I control in this moment? What can I control? And I move to that. And we basically lock out everything else and we just move, move, move. Right. And so, uh, so I think, and I know this is a really long answer, but let's get back to your daughters who are a little, who are younger. Right. So they're not going to understand these neuroscientific concepts. Right. Um, but what we can do is we can help our kids go into open gaze. You know, we can say, Hey, just, just now look at, look at me. And now just notice things in your periphery. They're going to, they're going to, their, their gaze will open up. Right. We could do some, <laughs> some EMDR that might feel weird to a kid. Um, we can help them breathe. Okay. Um, breathe in a way that helps them, you know, relax and calm down. Yeah. And of course with kids, as long as kids can anchor into something certain and safe, um, they will begin to feel safe, right? That's what parents are really for. We're, 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 we're there to provide. I have one funny story, then I'll, I'll shut up and let you <laughs> ask the next question. But a, a friend of mine, he's a, for, he's a, a fellow SEAL. This guy uh, was, is about, I mean, he still is this way. He's not, I think he's, I think he's retired at this point. He's six, I think he's six, five and 250 pounds, this dude. I um, mean, he's huge. He's, a, he's, a, he's enormous, a monster. Um, and he has two daughters and I remember his daughters were small and he used to tell us, and this guy, I mean, he was the nicest dude, you know, I mean, really just a, almost a kind of a jolly old giant, unless you pissed him off. Right. Then just stand out, stand back. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so we were always happy he was on our side, but he he used to say that his daughters once, uh, used to say, or at least once said, said, daddy, I'm I'm afraid of, I'm afraid of those. I'm afraid of the monsters that go bump in the night. And, um, and he looked at his daughter and said, honey, don't worry about it. I'm the monster that goes bump in the night. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, and so what, what he did with his daughter, she immediately felt certain. It's like, okay, the monster's on my side. Right. I don't have to worry about that. So, so I think with our kids, um, it's about making them feel safe and, um, and giving them certainty, right. In, in their lives that we can, we can help our kids just by helping them buy down those couple aspects through just helping them feel safe. So obviously you said a lot that I would love to pick off on there. And, and the, re- yeah. the, re- the reason why I'm so fascinated by fear is really having very little to do with fear and having much more to do with trust. Because one of my beliefs is that earning people's trust on purpose is perhaps the most valuable skill that anybody can gain. Yeah. And I also believe that there are people who are every people, all people are trustworthy circumstantially. And it's Mm -hmm. the people, meaning I would love my CPA to tell me about how to protect money from taxes. I'm not going to ask my CPA how to auto-regulate my nervous system when I'm stressed. (laughs) You know, so trust is circumstantial. And I find that one of the most interesting things about the people who I choose to trust is how do they function when they are afraid, when they right, are stressed? Right. Because trust in the modern world is, is, is fairly simple. It's, inter, it's interpersonal relationship trust, you know? Yeah. But I like to think about things, well, I don't like to, but one of the ways I think about things is I believe I have friends and I believe I have friends who would protect me when the Nazis came. Right. You know, which are very different kinds of people. And I can count one with many numbers. The other, I can count probably on one hand. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that's why I'm so interested in, in fear, because I think that when people are afraid, how can we be the best version of ourselves is, is fascinating. So a question I have for you about that is, is it ever good to choose flight in the modern world? You know, I, it makes mm-hmm. sense when, when a lion's chasing you. 
right, although you're, right. not, you're not outrunning that thing. But does it ever make sense to choose flight in the modern world? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, it, it, again, it's all it, what we really have to understand is the most powerful position um, inside of that fear response is, in fact, the freeze position when you are, in fact, desi- deciding. OK, because because what that means is you're actually analyzing risk. All right. And so this is what happens. This is really what what Navy SEALs and special operators are so good at is we understand and know how to almost unconsciously slow everything down and and begin to make a decision. Right. So I, I kind of joke my you know, I'm, I live here in Virginia and on my in my neighborhood across the street from me, there's a Navy SEAL down the road to my left. There lives a Navy SEAL and down the road to my right. There lives a Navy SEAL. So so there's a so it's a pretty safe neighborhood. Right. Um <laughs> And um, and I remember my wife once saying, she said, you know, I, I'm really glad that these guys are here because if something ever happened, I could go to them and they'd act like you act. And I would, I said, what do you mean by that? I said, as soon as I gave them a problem or something, something bad is happening, all of you just start calming down. You calm down and you begin working the problem, right? Um, this is exactly what we what it means to get your conscious mind back online, thinking through and analyzing. Um, to be able to look at what you're afraid of and analyze the risk involved, and then make a decision. Okay, is it is it the good is it a good idea to to step into this fear, or is it a good idea to step away? You're still doing something. Okay, um, the idea is do something, right? And 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 whether it's step in, whether it's um, step away, or whether it's a deliberate freeze, right? Sometimes the decision is I'm going to do nothing in this moment. I'm going to let the environment kind of. Uh, uh, kind of uh, mature around me a little bit before I make I'm gonna, before I make my next decision, right? Even that is a decision, right? So, so it's about the decision. It's about getting yourself to a position to make that decision. Well, it sounds to me right. The last thing you said there is is perhaps the most important. It's it's creating consciousness around that decision. If we're fleeing, right. it's because we decided to flee. If we're fighting, right. it's because we decided to fight. If we haven't done anything yet, it's because we don't have the information that we need yet to make the appropriate decision, but we're consciously collecting data. Right, right. Yeah, and so, and, and again, so in some cases, our amygdala response, even our amygdala hijack can in fact save us, right? Um, if we see a bear coming at us um, and we start running without thinking, that's probably a good thing. I guess unless it's a, unless it's a, um, a, a black bear, right? Isn't it, if black bear, you're supposed to get big and then stick them away and brown bear, you're supposed to, you're supposed to lay dead, right? So running is not a good idea anyway, I guess, with a bear, but you know, know what I'm saying? I live, <laughs> um, I live, I live at the beach. I went on a walk in, uh, in Tahoe at about 4.45 in the morning one time and I heard something rustling and I was like, you know what? I don't know if that was a guy taking his garbage out or a bear and I'm going home. Yes, so, that's right. That, 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 see, that was a decision, right? That was a decision. That was a good one, right? Um, and so, yeah, the, so the answer is yes. The, uh, the the right decision is not necessarily step in. The right decision might be step away. The right decision might be stop for a second and pause and wait. Um, the idea is you get yourself, you get your conscious mind back online so that you may make a decision. So one of the other things I've heard you talk about is control, you know, focusing on what can I control. Yes. And one of the things that I think... I have struggled with in the past is being clear about, can I actually control that? And it wasn't until I went through some really intentional conscious thought about, well, I can control me in that. I can't control that. Right. So, so how, how can, how can we help people speed the process from, well, I can control how many sales I make. I can control how many people I talk to. Like, you can't, 
Right. There's another. Well, it's all about it's all about framing the question properly. Um, and the, the the proper framing is what can I control in this moment? That's the framing of the question. The idea is we have to capitalize on what our what our minds do for us every single day. Um, our minds are question answering machines, and so that's how our brains interrogate the world. All right. When we deliberately lodge a question into our conscious mind, our brain has no choice but to begin to give us answers. I mean, that, that's just the way it works. Um, and the problem is, uh, we often do this without thinking, but, you know, and it's, it actually doesn't, we ask the wrong questions. Like, why am I so bad at this? What's wrong with me? You know, why is this always happened to me? Okay. Your brain will begin to give you answers to those questions. No, I mean, there is no doubt they, it, it will. Um, and I think every single, I, I think, I know every single high-performing person I've ever encountered, high-performing team I've ever encountered. And I, I learned this when I was in high school, takes conscious control of the questions they ask themselves, right? And they ask better questions, okay? So they ask things like, and, and one of the best questions you can ask in that moment is, what can I control in this moment? Okay, your brain will begin to give you answers, and those answers will be pretty good ones, right? Um, you won't necessarily get answers like, um, I can control the 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 pack of tigers that is you know mm -hmm. out there, right? You you know you're not going to answer that. What can I control in this moment? I can control the steps I'm taking. I control what I focus on. I can control what I'm going to do with my body. I can I mean, so, you know, in SEAL training, you get you get so good at doing this because you have to do it at such micro levels. I mean, SEAL training is so ridiculously hard and miserable at times that that sometimes that sometimes the answer to the, to the question, what can I control, is I can control the next 10 seconds, right? I can count to 10, right? And then you get to that. And guess what? As soon as you do that, you've initiated a system that gives you a reward. So you've given yourself a dopamine reward for getting to that moment, right? Which means you can ask again, right? Now that, that um, the distance that you're, you're choosing on, and on every, on every decision might change, right? So one minute might be 10 seconds. And that next minute is like, I can, I can, I can make it to the, to the, to the next meal or in, in seal training. It's like, Hey, make it to the next meal. Sometimes you're doing such, such miserable stuff. That's I'm just going to focus on the, the, the next hundred yards. That's what I'm going to focus on, which is really incredibly powerful. And I guess the, the, the unconscious genius that surrounded the, uh, the, the kind of the, the seal training process is that that's exactly how you operate in combat. Okay. Because in combat, when things, when the bullets start flying, um, there is a lot that you cannot control. And you have to basically chunk your environment very rapidly and saying, okay, what's the next move? What's the next move? What's the next move? And, and, and not worry about anything else, you know? And, um, and so you, you learn how to do that in very micro moments, but we can do this. We can do this as regular people in regular life in whatever, uh, context we want. I have what I believe to be a false belief. Or okay. I've had what I believe to be a false belief, and I, I'm, I'm curious to your take on it because this is off topic a little bit to what I really want to talk about today, but it's on topic to what you just discussed. I've had I'm not a Navy SEAL, you know, yep. straight up. <laughs> I, when, when, I don't have what it, I, I I was not born with that little thing that it takes to say I'm prepared to go and do that, and so right, I, have, right. I have reverence for people who do. And one of the beliefs I used to have that I've changed, but I don't know what I've changed it to is that it's that bubbed, you know, it's, it's going through that, that development to become a Navy SEAL. You were a military person. Now you are a Navy SEAL because you went through this training and now that is who you are for the rest of your life. What the reason I've changed that belief is because I've learned things about myself where I'm like, I went through this training and I no longer hold the beliefs that came from that training a hundred percent, or I've had to practice the things that I do believe 
and want to be good at in order to maintain them. So I would love to hear from you. You you graduate from Navy SEAL training. You become a Navy SEAL. How much of who you are after that requires intentional behavior, thought, practice to continue to improve upon the person who graduated that course? Wow, what a great question. Um, you know, the so, so I guess this is what... Uh, this gets into kind of this attributes discussion, right? And we start talking about these these hidden qualities that we all show up to the game with, right? Um, and I think that when it comes to something like SEAL training, and really we could we could kind of index against any rough, hard time any human being's been through, right? Those times where it's like, oh my gosh, it's like I I can't believe I can't believe I had what it, I didn't know what I had I didn't know that I had what it took to make it through that. Well. That, in my mind, is simply uh, an opportunity where you've been placed into an environment that has displayed an attribute that you didn't know you had, right? You had it in you. you just, you've never put, been put in a situation that, you, um, that required you to execute on it. So I think, I think we are – I think the folks like myself and guys who've made it through SEAL training are people who are largely the same people – uh, coming out as they went in, um, we've just discovered things about ourselves that we didn't know we had in us. I think that's really the key. And so, and so, going through life, you are just—it's almost like you have, you know, yeah. You know, I guess it's almost like instead of a, instead of like a small sliding door that's been opened, now like the whole the whole patio wall is down. Right? You have a better view. It's still the patio. I mean, you're still seeing everything that's out there is still the same as it was. It's just, you were seeing it from a small, a, a thin like slice. And now because you've discovered these things, you just have a better optic. So, so you feel like, and perhaps your performance and perhaps some of the things you accomplish in life feel like, Oh man, that that's, that person's a changed person. But I'm kind of one of those people who believes that I don't know how, how, how much you've changed. I think you've discovered your things about yourself. And then of course, because experience and, um, and, uh, development matters, right? You've, you've, you've been, you've had access to situations and environments on multiple occasions that have just hyper-developed those things, right? I, you know, I, you know, courage takes a step in a fear. I don't like heights. I write, I read, I write about it in the book. I've never liked heights. Heights scare me. Okay. Now flying is different, right? But, but, you know, heights like roller coasters and high things scare me. Okay. I had to jump out of airplanes thousands of times. I had to rappel down walls thousands of times, right? I was, always, I was in many, many situations in high places. Every time I was in those high places, I had to step into my fear, right? So I just, my, my ability to, uh, to be courageous just got hyper-developed, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? It wasn't that I was not courageous. It's just, you know, before I went to SEAL training, you know, I knew I wrote, I wrote a roller coaster one time and I hated it. So I didn't ride roller coasters again, right? SEAL training put me into an environment where I practiced it. And then I SEAL, being a Navy SEAL, put me into environments where I just kept on practicing it. So well, now I know how to do it. it. It sounds like what you're describing is is going back to the first thing that we talked about, where you have certainty about yourself that you didn't previously have. You're able to lean on that certainty when situations arise that previously you didn't know you didn't know about. That's right. Yeah, that's right. So I think I think what you, you make a great point. I think um, I think the the more diverse experiences we can place ourselves in, and and experiences with difficulty, the more we can test ourselves and place ourselves outside of our comfort zone, 
the more we learn about ourselves in a way that allows us to then do other things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I mean, people, human beings are for the most part courageous. Human beings are for the most part, you know, gritty and adaptable. All these attributes that I talk about in the book, we actually have all of the attributes. Every human being has all of them. It's just the levels that we have each are different, right? So, so I often use adaptability. If, 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 um, if 10 is high and one is low, uh, you know, I would, I would probably be about a level eight on adaptability. That means when the environment changes around me outside of my control, it's fairly easy for me to go with the flow and roll with it. Okay. Not that hard. It's not that painful. It's not that tough. Someone else might be a level three. Okay. Which means when the same thing happens to them, it's actually difficult for them. They're still adaptable. It just feels worse. <laughs> okay. Right. Um, and so that person who's a level three on adaptability is going to, if they want to develop adaptability, they're going to have to deliberately place themselves into environments that tease and test that adaptability constantly, right? And that, that and then that will be that, that that adaptability score will go up. But again, we don't default to those things. Typically, we're we, you know with that if we're just kind of riding through life, we're we will default to those to those environments, those scenarios that are congruent with the attributes that we we have. I.e., I'm not going to go on roller coasters, you know, every single day because I just don't like heights, right? So I'm not going to find myself in situations where I'm on roller coasters. The person who's low on adaptability will design in an unconscious way their lives to not have to – they'll design it with a lot of certainty, right? Um, so to to practice and develop adaptability will take a deliberate effort. So how much do you think the self-awareness around the amount or lack thereof adaptability on the continuum that you described, mm-hmm. how much do you think that plays in people's ability to trust you? Meaning, meaning I'll, I'll give you yeah. a little bit more context. So one of the things that we do in, in, in our company at Active Life is we help leaders in their organizations to help people who work in their business to better lead themselves. Right. And I think that what the, the, the biggest barrier that we typically bump up against is the self-awareness of the pinnacle leader in the organization. Because if that person doesn't realize that they are doing things that are subconsciously advising their their team to do something that is not beneficial to the business, well, then we run into a situation where there's frustration on the owner's behalf yeah. about the performance on the staff's behalf. And it comes back to awareness of the staff that the owner does this thing that the owner doesn't realize that they do. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great, it's another great question. I think, uh, I think self-awareness is one of the most important factors for any leader. Now let's quickly though, codify some terms. Okay. Uh, because we get, uh, we get the terms being in charge and being a leader conflated. All right. They are not the same thing. All right. Being, you know, one is a noun and one is a verb. Okay. Anybody can be in charge and we can actually self-designate. I'm in charge. We can say that. And that can, that can be a thing. We cannot do the same thing with leadership. You cannot self-designate as a leader, okay? That's like calling yourself good-looking or funny, all right? Other people decide whether or not you are someone they want to follow, and they do so based on your behavior, okay? So leadership is a behavior. Um, people decide to follow us if we behave in a way that allows them to decide, to make that decision. Um, you can be in charge. You can be the owner. You can be the boss. You can be the commanding officer. You can be the, you know, whatever. I mean, um, you know, I mean, even a... Even a um, even a kid can be like, you know, say I'm in charge or, or a teacher can leave someone in charge of a classroom, right, for, for five minutes while the teacher goes and gets something from the office, right? Um, that doesn't make that person the leader, all right? So so we have to understand these terms and we get confused. Again, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's acceptable, it's forgivable because 
the, because we kind of think of leadership as the noun, right? We think of leadership in the athletic sense as leader of the pack in front, right? Uh, on top, right? Whatever. Um, and we all know when it comes to leadership, the best leaders aren't in front at all, right? They're usually in the back. They're inspiring. They're pushing. They're, they're creating environments where people do their best. They excel. They're, they're building other leaders, right? I, I used to tell my JOs, you gotta, I tell my JOs, hey, if you, understand, you, have to, you have to accept the irony of leadership. The irony of leadership is if you do your job correctly, you work yourself out of a job mm-hmm. because you create a, you create a group of people who don't need you anymore, right? They outpace you. They outrun you. And any, that should be every leader's aspiration to create a team that eventually outruns them and outpaces them, right? But that also implies that leaders, if you want to be a leader, you also have to put your ego or put your, I shouldn't say put your ego, put your arrogance aside, right? It's, there's, a, there's a humility in great leadership. So, but part of that humility is self-awareness, right? Self-awareness allows us to say, okay, I, I, I can understand myself to, this, to the extent that I know my strengths, I know my weaknesses, I know what I can bring, I know what can offer. But I also know that these people that are in my span of care are so valuable, right? I think one of the most important things a leader can tell say to the people in their span of care are the words, I need you, all right? Uh, because what it does is it shows that person, hey, you provide something to this team that no one else can provide. You are special. You are, you are, um, you, you matter in this thing, in this organization. And I can't do what you do. There's another um, uh, leadership mantra that is absolutely false. It's, it says, uh, it's the one that goes, um, uh, never asks someone uh, to do something you wouldn't be willing to do yourself, okay? I think that's a ridiculous concept. There was, I mean, t- for me to think about that, like I would, to say something like, for me to say something like t- t- to my sniper, for example, like there are so many things my snipers can do that I could never do myself, right? I mean, they're the, because they're they're experts at what they do, right? I need them because they can, for the, for the precise reason, they can do things that I would never do myself, right? That's why we build a team, you know? So, so leaders have to understand that and people in charge have to understand that if they want to be leaders. I love that. I just timestamped that for the, uh, for the intro. <laughs> so a question I have for you comes from the, the, the reality that Simon Sinek is somebody who people look to as a person who can teach them how to build trust in their organizations for high performance. Yeah. And Simon Sinek is quoted as having said, so much of what I know about trust, I learned from Rich Devaney, which yeah. just so happens to be you. <laughs> it does. <laughs> yes. So a specific question that I have for you about trust in this scenario is how much do you believe has to, how much about your ability to gain trust from other people do you believe has to do with the way that you fail? Oh, I mean so much. So again, let's just talk about trust for a second. Okay. Trust like leadership is also a behavior. Okay. Um, you can't make anybody trust you. All you can do is behave in a way that allows someone to make a decision to trust you. Okay, trust. What is trust? Trust is a it's a belief. Okay, it's not not even a feeling. We always talk about trust as a feeling, which is just a human emotion. Trust, in fact, is a belief. Belief is a human emotion that's been rationalized or justified by that human being. So, so it's a belief, and to believe anything, you have to make a decision. All right. So, so, so trust is a decision made by someone about someone else. I trust this person because. It's a very, there's a, this is a, it's very easy to explain this to anybody who's listening. Okay. I want everybody who's listening just to think about for a moment, someone in their lives that they trust deeply. Okay. Picture that person and then ask yourself real quick, what did that person do to allow 
you to trust that person, right? And if you if you if you sit with that question for a little bit, you'll start to come up with answers like um, they took risk on me, they were honest, they were authentic, uh, they were empathetic, they cared about me. These are all behaviors, right? These are all things that they did. Um, and so, to build trust takes an uh, effort on our part, right? You'll notice that um, if you do the if you kind of think about those behaviors that build trust, they're almost identical to the list of behaviors that uh, that. Um, qualify great leaders, right? Because great leaders are trusted, <laughs> right? So um, so when it comes to trust, it's not one of these things where we're like, you know, oh, oh, you have to earn my trust, right? I mean, that's kind of true, but if a leader is saying that to someone else, then he's got to, he or she's got it backwards, right? The leader has to build an environment inside of which that that person trusts them, and then they will be, there'll be a, 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 an environment of safety where, where it's encouraged to uh, to perform and, and be trustworthy. So uh, so that's kind of a breakdown of trust. And kind of go back to a question you asked really earlier on. It's like you know those people who we trust in different contexts. Um, it's the re- the reason for that is because trust. In fact, part of trust is a little bit of competence, right? So so we've talked about I, I, and I did this work with a great organization called uh, the Chapman Co Institute. We kind of we kind of designed and developed the four elements of trust. Okay, and the four elements of trust are competence, consistency, uh, character, which can also be integrity, and then compassion. All right. So um, so competence do the thing right. Consistency do the thing right over time. Um, character or integrity do the right thing, and then compassion do the right thing for me as a human being because you care about me as a human being. Right. If we notice, if we just notice those four elements. Three of the four are are all attributes. Only one is comp- Only one is skills based, right? And that's competence. So when you talk about your your um, your CPA, uh, you know the CPA you trust from a skills from a competence standpoint. Okay, the reason why, and I don't know your CPA, but maybe he or she is a you know phenomenal in, under pressure as well. But just from a from a from a numbers standpoint, the reason why you say I don't know if I trust that person if the building were on fire is because. That's not the relationship. The relationship with your CPA is built on competence. That's it. Okay. Um, those people that you trust that you just talked about that wouldn't turn you over to the Nazis, right? Uh, that's because you've built that trust relationship with that person on all four of those axes, right? You trust them in competence. You trust their consistency. You trust their character. You trust their compassion. You have all four of those elements with that person, right? So, so we have to think about trust in terms of these environments we build and that most, almost all, of trust, only a small portion, I should say, of trust is just is skills based. Almost all of it is, almost all the rest of it is attributes based. Well, so one one of the one of the things that that leads me to asking you about is, I find that often people who are in charge, who aspire to be leaders, mm-hmm. um, and sometimes this includes myself. You know, I think that I think that sometimes I'm a better leader than others for the team that I work with and mm-hmm. for the people in my life. Um, there are moments of, I'm not sure how transparent I should be with this person about my lack of certainty in this situation, because yeah. I don't want there to be um, fear from the people who are depending on me for these kinds of certain actions that maybe I don't actually know what I'm doing. And, right. and, and I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you a, a very real world example that I'm going through right now that I'm trying to figure out what's the best way to communicate. We've recently, I've recently recognized that our company is company A 
And in order to have it become company B, we need to make changes in mm. regards to the way that we do things and who is in charge of doing those things. Frankly, a lot based on their ability to lead rather mm-hmm. than simply be in charge. Um, in doing that, we've had some personnel changes. And my concern has always been the people, I, I don't want to be so transparent so as to speak in a way that would defame unintentionally anybody who I have a lot of respect for and simply was now in the wrong seat, despite being right. perhaps the right person. And simultaneously, I want everybody on the team to understand these are the reasons why we had to make these moves so that they have certainty around the direction and future of their opportunity. Yeah. How do you balance yeah. that? Uh, wow. I mean, you know, the, I mean, one of the keys to high performing teams is transparency of communication and transparency of information. Right. Um, and part of that transparency of information includes the ability to tell people, give people honest and candorous feedback, uh, candor with care as, uh, as Kim Scott would would put it um, in her in her book, Radical Candor, right? Uh, but the ability to tell somebody um, some of those things that are a little bit harder to say, some of their some of their weaknesses, share with them some of their weaknesses from a place of, hey, I really care about as a, I care about you as a human being and want to help you get better is why I'm doing this, right? Um, and so, so part of the issue is is asking. Well, yourself if you have the relationship built so you can do that initially. I, I just want, I want to make sure I ask the question as clearly as possible. I, I, I yeah. haven't struggled to have that conversation with those people. Yeah. The conversation that I struggled to have is with the other people who are not privy to that conversation about why these decisions were made. Right. So they, so they already kind of know. Is what you're saying. The people who, who we've moved around, they, they do not. Yeah. Yes. The people who, who perhaps answered to those people or who just are on larger company oh, emails and who are in separate meetings that are more siloed than I'd like them to be that we're changing. Right, um, right, right. They might have questions about like, well, how do I know Why if is I'm- this person? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, again, it, it, so th- this is part of uh, – no one said leadership was easy. Right. <laughs> this, is part of the, this is part of the hard work of leadership. Um, and I think, uh, you know, one of the, one of the aspects that I guess has to be understood is that those conversation with the, those conversations with the, with the folks who may not know, um, can center around, um, all of the good things that that other person brought to the, uh, to the team in the organization and why those good things would be better fit in a different position. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of this stems from being able to define, define the role that we're talking about in attributes and skills. Hey, these are the skills required. These are the attributes required. Um, there are times where I had to move people around. And the reasons why I had to move them around, I was able to break down. I was like, listen, this specific role requires this set of skills, which you have some of them, and this set of attributes, which you actually you're a little bit lower on these attributes. However, to say that, that being said, this this. Um, this set of attributes you come to the table with would actually be fantastic in this other role, right? And to maximize your performance, we want to put you in this other role. So we're moving you to actually maximize your performance, not because anything's wrong. Again, to tell someone the, that their, their, their attribute score across the board is wrong is like saying someone's hair color is wrong. I mean, it's, a, it's, it's useless, right? We are who we are, right? So, so the conversation becomes, hey, 
the this person is going to we're going to capitalize on this person's authentic strengths, right, and weaknesses, right, in this other role, right? We're going to make they're going to be a maximum performer performer for us in this other role. The role that we were they were previously in, we it was our fault because we didn't recognize that they weren't the best fit, right? So that's on me as a leader, right? But as a leader, I also have to make sure I understand the team and make changes, right? And so I'm making changes so I can maximize people's role. I mean, if you, my sense is if you come at the conversation that way, those people who you're telling will look at that person in a much fa- much more favorable favorable manner. It's like, oh, okay, wait a second. They'll say, well, is, that makes total sense. And I'm, I'm really happy that this person is now in a position where they can maximize their strengths and weaknesses. And I understand why we need to put a new person in who has, who can actually, who can actually come to the table with what they, what they have. And it'll, it'll, it'll imbue trust with you because you're being honest, you're being transparent. It'll be imbue trust with you because you're, you're looking at things from a holistic view and it's not just opinion or just, you know, you being, you know, making decisions without even thinking about it. And does that apply also, do you believe when, when it means someone doesn't have a role anymore? Yes, because because sometimes if we do the diligence on what's required for a team, you know, so for, for every team is going to have its own list of attributes that are required. Okay, so the the, the, the list of attributes required to be a, a Navy SEAL is going to look different than the list of attributes required to be a surgeon or a doctor or whatever on a team of that, right? Um, and those that list helps you make those distinctions. So so one of the reasons why I was able to write the book and and my first. Um, dive into attributes was I was running a selection course, a uh, selection assessment course inside of the t- SEAL teams for one of our more specialized, for, for one of our very specialized SEAL teams. So at this particular command, what we were doing is we were taking experienced SEALs, right, and we were putting them through our own selection course and seeing if they had what it took to be part of our command. Well, we were getting a 50% attrition rate. We're talking about 50% of the guys were not making it through. So 50% of the conversation I was having was with guys who were already kick-ass SEALs, and I was telling them, hey, you, you don't have what it takes to be here. Well, I mean, that is a very difficult and contentious conversation to have, and it's one of the reasons why I began to say, how can I have this conversation differently? And the way we began to have that conversation differently was I began to define the attributes that were required for this specific role in the command that I was at, right? It was different than the roles in other SEAL commands, right? So we're, so I was able to say, hey, listen, this is these are the attributes. These are the specific attributes we're looking for at this command for this role, right? You came here and you showed us a shit ton of great attributes, okay? Unfortunately, though, you weren't, for the attributes we were looking for, you weren't high enough on what we needed. That doesn't mean you're a shit bag. That right. means that, you know, you are, it means that, it means that you are someone who, who, who's, who can kick ass in, in, in these other roles in the other SEAL teams. It just, you're, you're not, you're not a proper fit here, okay? So, so these are the conversations that we can have with people. Sometimes when you do the diligence on that, we'll find that there are some team members they're just not good fits for the team, right? And I tell you, it's a much, much more, it's a much easier conversation to have with someone when you're, when you're moving them on to say, yeah, listen, hey, listen, you are awesome. And this is all the awesome stuff you showed us, right? The problem is the, the stuff we're looking for is not lining up with the awesome stuff you have. So, so we really feel like you're going to be a better fit somewhere else. And it can allow you to, to let that person exit with an awesome recommendation and and um, and uh, and letters of recommendation and kind of um, and um, introductions to other jobs and help along yeah. the way. I mean, it's just a it's just a much more healthy way to do it for sure. And, and was that your inspiration to write the the book? Was that your inspiration to write the attributes? 
it was because um, as I got out of the Navy, um, which was you know several years later, I was starting to talk to I was you know I was working with Simon Sinek, I was working with these folks at the Chapman and Co Institute, and we were we were working with businesses, and I was talking about high performing teams. And I was noticing a lot of people were coming to me and asking about high-performing teams and saying specifically, like, hey, we are putting together dream teams, okay? We're, we're, we're basically getting together the best people, the best graphics designer, the best marketing person, best legal person, whatever it is. We're getting the best people together. And it's going great when things are going great. But as soon as things stop going great, as soon as curveballs are thrown in, we're finding these teams turning toxic. They're falling apart. And I said to myself, well, the reason is because you're picking based on the wrong things. You're picking based on skills. You're not picking based on attributes. Um, and I recognized that there was very there was very little out there that was giving language to this concept. And that's why I said, you know what, you know, someone could write a book on this and maybe I will. <laughs> that's what well, I did. I'm glad that you did because I, I, you know, I, I listened to a podcast a friend of mine did with um, the former CEO of Chipotle and he talked about hiring people based on attributes, not based on skills because you can right. teach skills. You can't teach attributes and you can place attributes, but you can't place skills. And, and, and it's funny because the SEAL teams have been doing this since their inception, and we just never were articulating it, right? There's, a, there's an old story of a guy that showed up to SEAL training. This was before I ever showed up. But uh, when you showed up there, you had to do a 50-meter swim in the pool, right? And this kid shows up, and he jumps in. The, it's his turn to go. He jumps in the pool. He sinks right to the bottom, and he basically walks along the bottom of the pool to one side and then walks along the bottom of the pool to the other side, come, you know, come back and he, he comes up and he's gasping for air. And the instructor looks and is like, what the hell were you just doing? And the guy looks at the instructor and says, I'm sorry, instructor, whatever. I, I don't know how to swim. And the instructor looks at him and says, don't worry, we can teach you how to swim. Right. Because the instructor knew if the guy had all the, if the guy had balls enough to come to seal training, right. not knowing how to swim, swim, he had all the attributes we needed. <laughs> right? Right, right. We could always teach a skill. We could always teach someone how to swim. We could always teach someone how to shoot. We're looking for attributes. You have what it takes. We'll teach you the rest if you have what it takes. And how much of that do you cover in the book in terms of if, if I'm a business leader and I want to go through that book and find that, are my people in the right position? Are our people in the right position? Should we be moving people around, maybe including myself? Um, I have a fairly clear vision as to what I think the answer to this question is, but I'd love to hear it from you. Yeah, I mean, so so I had to I had to make some decisions when writing the book because the attributes conversation can get so deep and get so subjective. Um, I had some thoughts and ideas and some desires to write about some very cool ways that attributes intersect and how to do it in teams. And the book would have been two thousand pages long, and I, mm -hmm. I couldn't do that. So the book is really much more of an introduction. I do talk about teams. And I do talk about how this how this looks inside of a team, and I give some guidance on how to start figuring out one's own attributes. Um, most of the work we do, the detailed work with the, we do with organizations, is through our consulting. When we're working with organizations, we go and we help them actually make these distinctions. We help them figure out, okay, what are the attributes that we actually need for our business, for our teams? Okay, let's get that list. Okay, now then we help them go through their position playbook. We help them create a position playbook that says, okay, position by position. Which are those attributes that are required for each position? Okay, because every position is going to require some different skills and different attributes. And if you have those kind of codified and written, then you know exactly how to then judge performance with the team you have and the people are going to fix. Then you, and you also know how to train and develop, you know, but then you also know the gaps and you know how to fill it. And you know, okay, I know what I, what I need and now I know exactly what to hire. So in the hiring process, you can now start hiring for attributes you're looking for versus skills. I love it. Rich, is there anything I didn't give you an opportunity to talk about that you think would have been valuable on the show? 
Uh, gosh, no, I mean, I, this was a great conversation. I appreciate it. And we did go down angles that I haven't talked about. So I appreciate that too. I know we had talked about that, <laughs> the goal of the, that being one of the goals. So, uh, no, I, 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 I am grateful for the opportunity to talk about the book. I'm, I'm, I'm proud of the book and the book is really, um, it's, it's resonating well with people. People who read it are really enjoying it. And they're, and my goal was to, um, really write a book that was for the reader. You know, there's obviously a lot of seal book seal books out there. A lot of those, I mean, a lot of them written by my friends and, and they're all really fantastic. I wanted to take a different angle though. And I wanted to kind of, instead of, instead of writing uh, something that kind of, kind of exacerbated the idea, uh, or, or kind of answered the question, why are seals different than everybody else? I wanted to say, why are seals the same as everybody else, or how are seals the same as everybody? Because we all we were all human, and so once you ask the question that way, again, ask better questions. You start saying, okay, what are those things that are the same? Can we extract that those things? Can we ubiquitize those things in a way that allows uh, the reader to gain some of this stuff and say, oh, okay, this is about me. So, so the the book is really it has a couple of seal things in there, a lot of other you know, business things, family things. But the book is about the reader, and um, and that's what I'm proud of. I think what you do a really good job of, Rich, if I can just give you a compliment publicly, is well, giving people the understanding that you might not be the right person to be a Navy SEAL, and that doesn't make you less than a Navy SEAL. It makes you lateral to a Navy SEAL. Totally. And, and, and you totally. need to be great at that. And I think that that's yeah. a really powerful and important message that you share with people because I've seen so much of what's in that world from the civilian side in terms of yes. the readings and all of that. And a lot of it ends with the, Oh man, I wish I could be more like them. And for you, it's no, why would you do that? You're a great right. version of you. And here's how we make that valuable. We are all, I kind of use the, uh, the automobile analogy on this one. We are all automobiles. Okay. But some of us are Jeeps. Some of us are Ferraris and some of us are SUVs. Okay. And there's no judgment there because the Jeep can do things the Ferrari can't do. And the Ferrari can do, can't, can do things the Jeep can't do. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's good to lift our hood and see what we're, what engine we're working with. Um, uh, there are contexts inside of which I am extremely competent and excel, right? There are also contexts inside of which I'm a complete doofus, okay? Mm-hmm. And that go, that's the, how it goes for every single human being, right? Um, so just because someone can't be a Navy SEAL, um, that means nothing. I mean, in fact, the percentage, the, the, the odds that you could be a Navy SEAL are extremely low anyway. I mean, it'd be, it'd, it'd be as ridiculous as saying, oh, I, I'm, I wish I could be like that athlete, like the Olympic <laughs> athlete, or I wish I could be like that, uh, like that singer, like Adele. I wish I could sing like I do. Oh, okay. You know, she just, she can sing. Okay. She has, she, she has, she's been endowed with the attributes that allow her to do that. Okay. The, the, you, we all have a collection of attributes inside of us that that can allow us to be heroic and superheroes in a specific context. And the idea is understand your engine and then find that context. Rich Devini, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Thank you, Sean. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Active lifers, I have good news for the fitness professionals out there. If you are ready to build a rock-solid coaching and training practice, the best place to start is in the Active Life Seminar. Hosted live and online, you're going to learn our signature nine-point movement assessment system, rules for training and programming with pain, and how to make sales feel natural so much more. Check out the link in the show notes for more information. Active Lifers, I have a favor to ask you. If you enjoyed the show, We pride ourselves on bringing value to you through the lens of bridging the gap between fitness and healthcare. The best way for you to support this podcast is by reviewing this episode wherever you listen. Please give us a five-star review and share this episode with a friend. Your support helps so much. 
Send a screenshot of your review to us on our Instagram account at ActiveLifeRx. As a thank you, we'll gift you a special PDF with the most common mistakes made when working out and how to correct them.